Well, um, before I get into the message, I'd just like to give a brief overview for those of you who are visiting. So we as a church family have been going through the book of Matthew with a lens of looking at um, how we are restored to grow and, fl- and to grow and mature in a number of ways so that we can be Jesus' hands and feet in restoring and advancing his kingdom. And so last week, Pastor Gina gave a message on how we are restored to give God's comfort. And this week, we are going to be looking at how we are restored to flourish with childlike faith. So our passage for today is from Matthew 18, 1 to 4. So I invite you to turn to that in your Bibles or on your phone app, Matthew 18, 1 to 4. So starting in verse 1, Matthew 18, at that time the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a little child to him and placed a child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes on the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Well, before we get into the specifics of this passage, let's take a moment to set the story in context. In Matthew, um, back in Matthew chapter 16, we learned that Jesus had already begun to explain to his disciples about his impending suffering and death and that he'd be raised again on the third day. And then Peter, James, and John also um, witnessed his transfiguration. So in spite of believing that Jesus really is the Son of God, And um, having a sense of what Jesus was about to suffer, as we look at this story in Luke 9, the disciples begin to argue amongst themselves who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Man, if I was in Jesus' place, I think I, you know, knowing what I was about to endure, terrible suffering and agony, I think I would have felt a little sad that my closest companions and my disciples were arguing amongst themselves who was going to be the greatest but in Christ's typical fashion, rather than condemning them from having prideful and self-centered thoughts, he started to speak about his upside-down kingdom. And then he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change, or another way of saying that, unless you are converted and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, that's a sobering thought. And he goes on to say that whoever takes on a lowly position of a child or as other translations render it, whoever humbles themselves like a child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So as we start to think more deeply about this passage, I'd like to briefly highlight two key words, humble and greatest. Oops. And then I would like to spend the bulk of our time looking at what is childlike faith? Why is it important? What are some roadblocks to flourishing with childlike faith? And what are some practical steps that we can take to nurture it? So first, let's look, first of all, what Jesus meant by taking on the lowly position of a child or being humble like a child. Among the definitions of humble from Strong's Concordance on this passage, it means to bring down one's pride or to have a modest opinion of oneself or to be devoid of all haughtiness. Similarly, secular definitions of the word humble include being unpretentious, or being free from pride or arrogance. You know, it's just a good thing to remember that our Lord hates pride. He hates arrogance. 
in Proverbs 8.13, we read that to fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance and evil behavior and perverse speech. C.S. Lewis said that pride is the anti-God state of mind. Imagine what it would be like to live in a world without pride or arrogance. Jesus, of course, is our perfect role model. He chose to lay down his divine qualities and demonstrated both humility and childlike faith and his total dependence upon his father. And just as an aside, childlike faith is the opposite of self-sufficiency. Jesus chose to obey him even when he pled with his father in the Garden of Gethsemane. My father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. The second word from this text I'd like to highlight is greatest. How Jesus might define greatest in his upside-down kingdom, of course, is a lot different how our world would define greatest. We would define greatest probably by being number one or superior, having the most prestige or power. But less in contrast, take a look at what Paul says about both Christ's humility and greatness in Philippians 2. He starts by telling us to have the same mindset as Christ and then adds, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ, who, being the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. And being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So because Jesus lived these ideals to perfection, God the Father exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name above every name. So the question for us is, then how might we live up to God's definition of greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Or how might we live our lives with childlike faith? So as I mentioned earlier, I'd like to focus on four things. What is it? Why is it important? What are some of the roadblocks? And then looking at some practical steps that we can take to nurture childlike faith. Well, there's a beautiful description in childlike faith in Scripture recorded in Psalm 131, (laughs) where David says, My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me, but I have calmed and quieted myself. I'm like a weaned child with this mother. I'm like a weaned child. I am content. I often quote this passage to myself when I'm reading scripture that I don't understand or when I view things in the world going on around me that I find troubling or perplexing or maybe when prayers aren't answered in the way I had hoped or any number of things that I find perplexing. Um, Many of us faced a lot of disappointment and confusion when the Lord didn't answer our persistent and fervent prayers for Pastor Dave's dad. You know, it's hard to understand why the Lord Um, didn't answer prayers for Gus Wester's healing. And likewise, a number of you have already have have recently dealt with or are dealing with unanswered prayers on a number of fronts. So when something like this happens, we can either start to question God's word or his goodness, or we can choose to live with the fact that our all-wise knowing Father in heaven sees the whole picture and understands things that we can't begin to understand. 
I don't know how many of you watched Gus Wester's funeral online, but the, the testimonies of the family members were such a beautiful example of childlike trust and unshakable faith, even in the midst of deep, deep suffering. And one of the many comforting passages that was read at his funeral was from Psalm 42:11, which states, Why, my soul, are you so downcast? Why are you so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. So while there are circumstances in life we certainly don't understand, it doesn't change the fact who our God has faithfully um, shown himself to be throughout history and throughout our lives. In him, there is no darkness at all. For me personally, when I face a challenge or a shaking of some sort, I choose to believe in the goodness of God. And I, I just remind myself, like David, I don't need to understand everything. And I choose to believe in the truth of his word. I choose to believe him when he says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are my ways your ways. When I get stressed out or confused or shaken, I remind myself that my role is to simply stay by his side like a weaned child and then let him lead and guide me and work through my life as he sees fit. And when I get thrown off balance by something, I remind myself to right away run to my father's arms and then ask him for what I need, for comfort, for strength, for understanding, for reassurance or whatever. And when I do that, it paves a path for me to be grounded in him again. I'd like to say this is the way I always lived my life, but prior to me being born again, which sadly didn't happen until well into my adulthood, I lived my life more like an orphan, rarely going to God for what I needed. Interestingly, even though I wasn't born again, kind of like in Jade's case, I considered myself a solid Christian from as early as I can remember. I believed I was a Christian. I believed Jesus. I believed his word was true. I believed that Jesus died for my sins. He's my savior. I made a profession of faith. I went to church every week. However, no one ever explained to me what it meant to have Jesus as Lord of my life. And as I look back at those times, I think, man, even though I thought I was walking the Christian walk, I don't even know if I was saved back then. Why? Because I was Lord of my life. I didn't have an intimate relationship with Jesus. I worked for my own gratification and acclaim. I labored to do everything in my own strength. I felt a sense of pride even about not being dependent upon other people or even dependent upon God. Mind you, I struggled with chronic depression and anxiety and lack of purpose in life, but I never made the connection how those things were directly related to me being the Lord of my life. I rarely asked God for help unless I was in a crisis mode. And when I would cry out to him, he would faithfully come. He would draw me out of the pit, put my feet on firm ground, lavish me with his love. And then once I got stabilized again, I go right back into operating in my own strength and kind of forget about him. And for years, I went through that cycle over and over and over again. Metaphorically speaking, I had both of my hands firmly on the steering wheel of my life. Continuing with that metaphor for a moment, let me pause for a moment and ask you, if you were to imagine Jesus riding with you in your car, 
where would you imagine him being? Would he be in the trunk where you address him primarily in an emergency situation, which is where I had him most of the time? Would he be in the back seat where you have occasional conversations with him? Would he be in the passenger seat where you have quite a bit of communication with him, but you are still in the driver's seat with your hands on the steering wheel? Or would he be in the driver's seat with you as his adoring child going along with him, willing to follow him wherever he goes? I would say in my life, um, for a chunk of it, Jesus is in the driver's seat. But then there are times when I relegate him to the passenger seat, when I make a priority, I prioritize my agenda, my needs, my preferences, whatever. And so I'm working to change that. I'm a work in progress. Going back to my story of primarily interacting with Jesus when I was a crisis, over time I started to notice a pattern, and that was how faithful he was in saving me time again and pulling me out of that pit. And then I began to think about, like, huh, I wonder why I only have contact with the Lord when I'm in a crisis mode. And when I do ask for help, he's so kind and he's so loving. So why is it that I only have contact with him when I'm in an emergency? Why don't I have routine contact with him all the time? And then that kind of set me on the path of, oh, he is trustworthy. He is faithful. Well, then I can depend upon him like a child. And so that started me in the process to finally um, asking him to be the Lord of my life and then um, being born again. And then I must say that that dramatically changed my life overnight. And I've never been the same since. Praise the Lord. (laughs) And so next, let's take a look at why childlike faith is important well first and foremost it's important because jesus tells us it's important in fact in verse three of our text he says truly i tell you unless you change and become like little children you will never enter the kingdom of heaven so we need to not only recognize our desperate need for him to be our savior we also need to die to our pride our self-importance our independence our self-directed life our sinful ways and be born again so that he can be Lord of our lives. That's the only way we can enter heaven. I just want to pause for a moment and say if there are any of you here who have not yet made that decision to make Jesus the Lord of your life, I pray that you will consider doing that today. It is the most important decision you will ever make, and once you make it, you will never, ever, ever regret making it. And so if the Lord is stirring in your heart, you've never made that decision, I invite you after this service to come up, go to the prayer partners who are up here, come to me, go to Pastor Gina, Pastor Jalisa, go to one of the um, care elders. Any one of us would be thrilled to take you through that process. So please, if the Lord is stirring in your heart, don't ignore it, act on it. So the second reason that we want to nurture childlike faith is that it can bring us peace and spiritual and emotional stability. Children are completely dependent upon their parents to get their needs met, and they're content with that. They expect to be loved and nurtured and cared for. And likewise, if we permit ourselves to develop that same kind of dependency dependency on our Abba, we can experience that same kind of contentment that children have with healthy, godly parents. Our triune God is worthy of our trust. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows what's best for us. 
He knows what's on our mind before we speak it. He knows our needs. He sees the future. His eyes are always on us, and he's available 24-7. In John 6.35, Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever believes in me will never go hungry. Whoever, um, whoever, whoever, sorry, whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Having childlike faith makes us more likely to cling to our Father in heaven with the expectation that he's not only able but willing to meet all of our needs, whether they're physical, emotional, relational, or spiritual. And even like what Jade was describing, even if our life is currently in a deep pit, a pit so deep, we can't even see a glimmer of light. He is most willing and able to draw us out of that pit and take our hand and put us on firm ground so that we can bask in his glorious light, his love, and his freedom. And I say that with confidence because there was a time in my life when I was in such a place and he did that for me. And just like Jade, I know there are many of you here who would have a similar testimony. Likewise, having childlike faith increases the probability that we will remain spiritually and emotionally stable if a personal or a national or even a world crisis comes along. If we have childlike faith rather than being overwhelmed by the situation, we will be quick to run to our faithful father for help, for shelter, for guidance and strength. Psalm 28.7 says, The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him. And he helps me. We can either keep our eyes fixed on Jesus or on the problem at hand. Corey Timboom, who underwent, um, she endured terrible suffering, including being in a concentration camp. She had this memorable quote, and she said, If you look at the world, you'll be distressed. If you look within, you'll be depressed. If you look at God, you will be at rest. Actually, last week, Pastor Gina gave us the perfect example of childlike faith when she learned at the last millisecond that she'd be preaching Sunday morning. And then rather than um, getting stressed out and getting high anxious about it, she trusted in her faithful father that he would provide for all of her needs, and he did in amazing ways. Third, in addition to helping us to be grounded and stable in the Lord, having childlike faith can also bless us with a teachable spirit and help to protect us from spirits of pride and arrogance, thinking that we have the answers to everything. In 1 Corinthians one twenty-five, it states that the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. If we maintain childlike faith, we'll be less likely to fall into the trap of reinterpreting Scripture so that it makes more sense to us. We'll be less likely to be swayed by the many cultural pressures because we trust him and his living word to be true. We'll also be um, more willing to embrace the mystery when things don't turn out as we had hoped, as in the case of Pastor Dave's dad. Instead, we choose to believe that our Abba is always good and that he works all things out for our own good and that his ways are perfect and just even when we don't understand them. And finally, number four, having childlike faith can also help us to stand firm in the faith as we relate to the world around us. Like young children will be less concerned with social status or what people think because what's most important is our father's love for us and his acceptance of us. 
Knowing that can also help us to take a stand for truth and face rejection and ridicule and persecution. Jesus tells us we are going to be hated because of him. And he also tells us that we're going to be persecuted. But whoever stands firm to the end will be saved. Jesus was able to endure all that he did because he was confident of his father's love and purposes for him. I personally believe that it's so important to develop childlike faith now before societal pressures increase or persecution increases against Christians in our nation. And if we make it a priority to make our work on our relationship with the Lord now, we will be less likely to be shaken in the future regardless of what happens. King David said in Psalm 16, 8, I I have set the Lord always before me. Because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Next, I'd like to take a moment to think through some of the possible roadblocks that could hinder us from flourishing with childlike faith. As I pondered some of the um, roadblocks that could occur, it occurred to me that they might fall into four categories. Pride, control, trust, and schemes of the enemy. For instance, regarding pride, there may be times when we think we know best. And with a prideful, rebellious heart, we reject the Lord's guidance or direction or discipline or even the infallibility of his word. We may also think that we're self-sufficient, don't really need his help. In Isaiah 53, 6, we are reminded that we all, like sheep of monastery, each of us has turned to our own way. Next, in our sinful nature, many of us have a desire to control our lives. You think about a weaned child, a weaned child really has no control over their life. A parent says, we are going to go to the store. We're going to go to church. The child goes where the parent wants them to go, maybe reluctantly at times, or maybe with a hissy fit. But nevertheless, the parent has a final say. For those of us who lean toward being independent and in charge, it may feel very challenging at times to give up our control and embrace a submissive spirit and be led like a child. Additionally, it might feel more efficient if we do things in our own strength rather than taking the time to seek God's guidance or to wait on his timing. Some of us may have difficulty trusting the Lord. And this goes back to a control thing. We'd rather take the control of our steering wheel of our life so we know where we are going, what we're going to be doing, and when we're going to arrive. We don't like uncertainty. <laughs> it's true. And so for individuals who grew up in abusive households, it may be difficult to imagine a loving, attentive, caring parent and subsequently may have difficulty trusting God. But let me just say, an earthly parent's brokenness does not define our loving, flawless Father in heaven. And for some of us, it might be easier to trust what we can see or touch rather than put our trust in an unseen God. Some of us may be plagued with anxiety or what-if thoughts. It makes it difficult to put our trust in the Lord. And finally, some of us may have difficulty trusting the Lord because of a profound hurt or disappointment. Regarding all of these trust challenges, we are reminded in Psalm 62, trust in him all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. And finally, the fourth thing on there, the schemes of the enemy. Our enemy works overtime to keep us from having intimacy with the Lord 
Because when we do have a flourishing relationship with our Abba, we are the greatest threat to the kingdom of darkness. So the devil will try to lure us away from quiet time with the Lord through a myriad of enticing worldly distractions that in the moment seem a lot more enjoyable and relaxing than spending time with the Lord. These things may not be inherently bad, but nevertheless, they eat up our free time. And this could even include ministry or our work if those things are out of balance in our life. The enemy also works on creating in-the-moment distractions. Have you, how many times have you sat down to pray, and then all of a sudden your mind is bombarded with all these random thoughts, or things on your to-do list comes to mind, or your phone goes off, or any number of distractions? And so they may not be random. We have an enemy that's working against us, spending time with the Lord and having good focus. And so some of the things I do to um, mitigate that is I bind a spirit of distraction. I pray for the Holy Spirit's help in focusing. I try to uh, make my environment as quiet as possible, turn off my devices, and also have a notepad nearby. So if these to-do list things come to mind, I just write it down and then immediately switch my focus back to the Lord. As we look at the roadblocks associated with pride, our lack of control, or our desire to control, or our lack of trust in the schemes of the enemy, I'd like to take at least one minute and just invite you to close your eyes just for a minute and ask the Lord if there are any roadblocks in your life that are making it difficult for you to flourish with childlike faith. And so let me just pray for us a sec. And so, Heavenly Father, we come to you, and we ask right now that you would just quiet our hearts, and that you would still our minds, that you would quiet the voices of the Holy, or that you would um, silence the voices of the enemy. And Holy Spirit, would you show us right now if there are roadblocks standing in the way of us putting our complete trust in you, like a child with a loving father? Jesus, for those of us for whom you've highlighted one or more roadblocks, would you remind us to, and motivate us to diligently work with you to remove those roadblocks so that our relationship with you might flourish? Thank you, Jesus. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen. Okay, are you still with me? <laughs> We're in the final stretch. Let's take a look at some practical ways now in which we can nurture childlike faith in our lives. And let me preface all that I'm about to suggest with a reminder that in order to grow in our childlike faith, the primary goal is to have intimacy with our Father, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. How can we grow in our dependence if we really don't know who our Abba is, or if we don't know his word, or if we really don't trust him, or if we're not sure of his love for us? We grow in intimacy with another when both parties are invested in that relationship it involves intentionality. It's a two-way commitment. And we will get out of it what we put into it. James tells us in chapter 4, 8, come close to God and he'll come close to you. Jeremiah twenty-nine thirteen, the Lord says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. So those verses and many others speak to our responsibility in nurturing a relationship with the Lord. 
if we take make it a priority to spend time with the Lord each day, and we do so with an open mind, a teachable heart, and ask for his help in developing intimacy, that time spent with him will bear so much fruit. And if any of us really don't have a consistent time with the Lord, it, it's a wonderful thing to do that. <laughs> and so maybe we can start with tiny goals, goals we know we can achieve, so we get into the habit of having routine contact with the Lord. And then once we do that, time with him will naturally expand because it's that good, and we will love spending time with him. When we put him first place in our life, he'll not only bless us, but he actually supernaturally expands our time. Over the years, I've experienced that over and over again. In Matthew 6.33, it says, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, then all these things will be given to you as well. So if you could, um, there's a handout by you, hopefully. And so maybe if you look around to empty seats or something, if any of you do not have a handout or a handout near you, just raise your hand and Katie will come around and give you a handout. Is there anyone who doesn't have a handout? I think we're pretty well covered. Okay, due to time constraints, I am not going to go through this whole thing, but I just want to highlight a few things on here, and I just um, pray that you will take the time to read through it at your leisure and then ask the Lord ahead of time, is there anything on here that you'd like to highlight for me? The first thing I'd like to highlight is number one. Have a routine dialogue with God throughout the day. And an easy way to start doing that is just to give thanks to the Lord for everything good that happens. He's the giver of all good gifts. And so even thank him for mundane things. So all day long we're saying, thank you, Lord. Thank you for clean water. Thank you, Lord, that I can walk. I'm mobile. Thank you, Lord, that I can do whatever. And so when we have these ongoing contacts for him, with him throughout the day, it starts to open up the avenue for us to have dialogue with him. I'd like to also highlight number five, memorize comforting and strengthening scriptures. If you're reading something in scripture and something pops off the page at you, you think, wow, that's a good word. Well, then write it down and memorize it, because then the Holy Spirit, when we're in a crisis state, will bring that passage to mind, and it will help to strengthen us and comfort us. One of the passages um, that I refer to periodically is Philippians 4, 6, and 7, the first one I listed in there. Not to be anxious about anything. So, like, if I start to feel myself getting anxious about something, I say to myself, like, wait a second. He tells us that we shouldn't be anxious about anything. And then I begin to repeat that passage to myself over and over and over again. And you know what? In time, I do begin to experience a peace that surpasses understanding. Number six, get into the habit of going to Jesus first for advice or counsel or whatever, rather than going to the family members, friends, or social media. Again, it just increases our dependency upon him first and foremost, and it gets us into the habit of having this routine contact with him. Number seven, get into the habit of praying with his, for his help in all situations, particularly in situations where we feel competent to handle things on our own. Back when I was teaching at Calvin, there were certain classes that I taught that I felt very competent to teach, and I didn't necessarily feel any need to pray ahead of time. But then when I started to pray for those classes and I asked for his anointing, those classes would go way better than normal. 
And again, it just reminds us we are dependent. We're not operating in our own strength. You flip the page over. The last one I'd like to highlight is number 16, and that is to be aware of our self-talk. We all talk to ourselves all the time. It's very likely that you're talking to yourself right now, even as I'm talking to you. And a lot of times it's at a subconscious level. Sometimes it's on a conscious level. So regardless, conscious, subconscious, our thoughts impact our behavior, our attitudes, and our emotions. And so it's really helpful if we invite the Lord to um, right away correct us, alert us when our thoughts are off the mark so that he can help us to get right back on track again. So I'd like to summarize all of this by pointing out that our Father in Heaven is waiting for us with open arms to come to him. So like in the story of the prodigal son, like when he sees us coming, he's going to run to us and embrace us and lavish us with his love and share his heart with us. There is no other relationship on this earth that will be as satisfying, fulfilling, grounding, and meaningful as having intimacy with Papa God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. He's a God of restoration and of hope as well as our strength and our shield. And he's also our delight. I pray that we take great pleasure in spending time with him as a childhood with a loving parent and listening to what he has to say to us. In Psalm 52, 55, 2 to 3, Psalm 55, 2 to 3, he beckons us to come to him. And he says, listen, listen to me and eat what is good. And you will delight in the richest affair. Give ear, come to me. Listen, that you may live. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for the great love that you have lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God. Lord, we ask for your help and guidance to grow in intimacy with you. May we learn to listen to you and learn from you so that we may be filled to overflowing with your fullness. Bless us with childlike faith that you had, Jesus, so that we will not be shaken when things around us are shaking. And so that you can continue to work in and through our lives in ways that are pleasing to you. May your name be glorified through our faith in and our obedience to you. Amen. Amen.